So Father in heaven, we uh, uh, open our hearts now to hear your word. Uh, draw us close to you, we pray. Uh, we live in a conflicted society and, and we come here just needing to be nurtured in light of the stresses of our own lives and yet we find not only is there safety but calmness and you lead us beside quiet waters. You restore our soul, we know that. And so I ask you'll do that again today as you light the path for the way ahead for us in life uh, because life is going to be conflicted. So help us to deal with that ever so well ever so Christianly, like Christ would, we pray. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. It is not lost on me that they are here on a summer day. It's not lost on me that we would come from such a variety of backgrounds. And it's not lost on me that we have one common Savior and Lord, one hope, which is heaven. And so may, may you bind us together in, in a miraculous kind of way as we head towards heaven, we pray. Thank you in Christ's name. All God's people say amen. Amen. We're in a series called Be Encouraged. We're in 2 Corinthians. We're in chapters 10, 11, and 12. So strap on the seatbelt today. It's a lot of material. Uh, but I just I want to give to you uh, just a bit of 10, 11, 12. I only want to sink in on chapter 10. If you have a Bible, turn with me there. We live in a society that is conflicted. And everywhere you go, there is conflict. We don't like it. I, I shouldn't say that. There are a handful of people in the world who enjoy conflict. And if you know one of those people, I'm sorry for you. But there are a few of them that just, they just love a good fight. But life is very conflicted. And, and we don't like the conflict. I especially don't like the conflict. You don't like it among friends. Because you have such a good relationship and you don't want to lose that. And yet if you... If you don't face the truth about something with somebody, then you lose a bit of trust, you lose a bit of the edge, there's no more honesty, no more transparency because you can't be totally open and honest with them. It's no longer the friendship that it once was. And so you have to go into those places and confront the conflictedness. And what happened to the Apostle Paul was he arrives in Corinth, it's a city in Greece, eastern shore, southern eastern shore of Greece. He starts a church, he leaves to go plant some other churches, and then some people come in behind him and teach, and they teach that he's really not an apostle. He's not all that he says he is. There are better preachers out there. There are super apostles out there, people who can gather a better crowd, who are better looking, taller, have better verbal skills, and they just, they just go on. He doesn't really hear from the Lord, and some of this is fabricated. And so he had to face it, because if he didn't, then those lies would prevail. And if those lies prevail, the church would be lost. But even more importantly, the truth would be lost. And so he has to confront them because if he doesn't, then the lie will prevail. And it will, it will sit on that church until that church dies. It will be like a tumor on that church. And so he has to face it. You're going to have to face conflict. I will too. I don't like it. You don't like it. In fact, if... If you take glee in confronting someone, then you should not do it because you should go to those conflicted situations, conflicted yourself, knowing that you need to do what's right, but you take no joy in it at all. But in the midst of that, you can be encouraged that God is in the conflict. You will find a closeness to God when you feel alone because you are estranged from the person you're in conflict with. I tell you that to say this. The Apostle Paul knew what it was like to have a lot of friends. He also knew what it was like to be alone. And if you follow godly people of the scriptures, you're going to find there are times when there are great crowds around them. There are times that 
They just would walk away and they'd scratch their heads and they're not sure they wanted to follow. It happened with Jesus. And he turned to his disciples one day and said, you guys want to leave too? He knew what he had to say on certain days was popular, on other days wasn't so popular. That's why, and I love the new song we're singing, Build My Life. I will build my life upon you, Jesus, and I will not be shaken. Isn't that good? I will not be shaken. By the way, if you want to read a good book, Tim Tebow just wrote one a couple years ago uh, called Shaken on, on how to stand in midst of adversity. And there's a guy who's done it with his Christian faith. So the Apostle Paul faces this, and you and I will have to face it as well. Let's glide through a few of the passages here. Chapter 10, look at verse 7. You are judging by appearances. If anyone's confident they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. In other words, you're no better than me. You, you can't say these, these appearances really matter. They don't really matter because I belong to Christ just like you do. And it implies you can't treat me as something less. I do not want to seem, verse 9, to be trying to frighten you with my letters. He says, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be one thing in my letters. I don't want to scare you with my letters. And then when I show up, I'm not so bold. Uh, you're accusing me of being two-faced or something. No, I'm just trying to be kind in this. There's no easy way to face this. Um, turn the page, chapter 10, verse 12. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. In other words, don't, don't even try to commend yourself. Don't, don't announce just how great you are. Get that? That's pride. And, the, and there, there's, there are only seven things that the Lord really, really hates. Pride's one of them. Yeah, get away from that. So we do not dare to classify, verse 12, or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves, they compare themselves with themselves. This is entangling. He goes, and they are not wise. That's the nice way of saying they are fools. They're being plain stupid. We had a guy who used to be an elder here. He's since moved away, and he was an officer, police officer. And he'd be telling me about a case that'd be happening out on the streets. None of you, of course. He'd pull someone over, they'd go to court. He'd say, right before the judge, he said, and then the guy took the stupid pill. <laughs> Isn't that a good line? And then the guy took the stupid pill. Go back to verse 12. I love that. If they commend themselves by themselves, of course you look good, because you're looking at yourself. You're looking at yourself. That is not wise. If you're the biggest fish at the pond, it's a small pond. Chapter 11, verse 5, that's not Bible, but <laughs> not a bad. Chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 5. Do not think that I am the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker. What was he? He actually was an attorney. He had great thought and had the academic skill that could put them all under the table academically. I mean, he could... He could argue them out. Indeed, I'm an untrained speaker, but I, I do have knowledge. We've been made perfectly clear of this in every way. So don't think that I can't stand for myself. I really, I really can. The attacks are so blatant that he had to address them, and he feels like a fool for doing it. I, I feel stupid I have to address this, but I have to, because if I don't, you're going to believe the lie. Chapter 11, verse 16 I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, 
so that I may do a little boasting. What, is he really boasting? No, he's just telling you, here's the fact. This is the fact. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. He's saying, you want to go there? I can go and I can win that game. You don't want to go there. And I feel stupid going. I feel foolish. Have you ever been in a conflict where you just go, it is, this isn't worth it? You ever had that before? This is not worth it. Every so often you'll see an evening news, a road rage, and then you'll realize all over a lane change or a parking spot or something dumb and someone is hurt for a long time because of it and you realize this impulsivity is foolish. Chapter 12, keep reading. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions, revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who for 14 years was caught up to the third heaven. It's like saying, I, you, you think you're something. I, I'm around people who are spiritually way further than you are. I don't talk about it. Why? Because it's foolish to do that. I'm not in that game. Go back again. I'll go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. You can see his conflictedness in this. And, and that's where you are, and that's where I am. When we're in conflict with another person, you go, I don't even know if I want to address this or not, because it may not be, it, the win may not be worth it. it and, and when it comes down to truth and righteousness, then it's worth it. But other times you just wonder at times, is this really worth it? Uh, chapter 12, verse 2. I know a man in Christ who for 14 years was caught up to the third heaven. I know what I'm talking about. I've been around the supernatural. It does not surprise me. So how do you handle this? He actually handles it in the first five verses of chapter 10, the beginning of this discussion. And I want to talk with you about how do you handle the conflict? Because the conflict really is in starting in our heads, moves to our heart, it's part of our value system. And then the conflict then eventually bubbles its way out. And if you don't address it, if you don't deal with it, it will find its way out of your body. In fact, some medical doctors say you may not keep score of your anger, but your stomach does. Okay? It's called psychosomatic illness. And we now have research that tells us 50%, as much as 70% of the medical conditions are brought on by the environment of our context, the stresses that we're under. So, chapter 10. Verse 1, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid, in quotes, I'm being shy about this, quiet about it. When face to face with you, but now bold, there it is again in quotes. You think I'm timid, you think I'm bold, I'm the same guy. When face to face with you, but bold toward you went away, I beg you, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. Get that? We don't fight the way the world fights. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. They are, on the contrary, they are divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive, get this, every thought to make it obedient to Christ. What's he saying? How do I handle this conflict? Number one, when you go into a conflicted situation, attitude's a huge deal. 
you go softly. Chapter 10, verse 1. With humility and gentleness, you appeal to the people. It doesn't mean you're weak or unsure of yourself. You're not quiet, and then you're bold, and then you're outlandish, and then you're sarcastic, or you're nasty, and then you clear your voice, and you raise it at a temperature. No, stay steady, be humble, be gentle. The approach has to be great. Uh, uh, It has to be measured, and it has to be gracious at all times. And those strong words that you give are not to be mean. Those strong words are there to be measured so people understand you mean what you say, you say what you mean. Uh, And sometimes people, when they hear that, they don't want to hear what they don't want to hear. And so then they say, well, you're just being mean. No, no, I'm just, I'm speaking the truth. But if you are gruff about it, they'll lose that. That's why you have to start with, Humility and gentleness. Now, <clears throat> here's what will happen it is when you talk about love or joy or a happy day or good things that are happening, people are all over that. When you begin to talk about keeping your word or a holiness of life, when you speak in terms of perseverance, then people back away and they realize, you really do mean what you say and, and that's, that's not for me. I'm not there yet, they'll say. Okay. But I want you to be there, but you need to be there, and I know that, but they push back. And then they, view you, they disqualify your words as if you're being mean. That's why it's so important that you stay steady, humble, and gentle. When you approach the, the thinking process, if you can do that, you will be miles ahead in the long run. Now, why is that so difficult? Well, because we're emotive people. We just are. And it's easier to raise your voice, it's easier to fly off or to give the illustration that really does not uh, the example that really does not solve the problem so go back to verse three now for though we live in the world we do not wage the war as the world does the weapons we fight with are not with the weapons of the world um i have to understand i'm coming at this with humility i'm going to speak the truth but i'm going to be humble i'm going to be gentle but i have to understand there is another battle happening inside the mind of the person I'm talking to. And that battle may be for their personal identity, their security. It may be another thing you don't really know about. What we do know is this. This is a war like, not like any other war. And so if you go into this conflict thinking that this is just like every other conflict in life, you'll lose every time. It is invisible because it's at the mind level. It's at the thinking level. And what society will do today is reframe the thinking to to make it part of identity or part of a right or something else. And the way they do that then is then to say, well, then you're attacking me or my rights or my space. No, I'm just trying to come to a cultural understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Most of us in the room are pretty gentle, quiet, peaceable people, right? We all say that. We're in church. Yeah. I, I love the illustration of, of Charles Swindoll, not mine, radio pastor Charles Swindoll. Because you and I, are, we're, we're relatively close to being pacifists. We're just let be what is going to be. But if we were truly pacifists, Swindoll says, you would take the locks off your doors at night. Yeah, yeah all together, no. Yeah, you are going to create a boundary, aren't you? You're going to have a stop. You're going to at least going to try to slow them down, right? 
you're going to create a line to say, this is not your property. This is absolutely wrong. And that's what we're saying here. So go back to verse 3. This is not the kind of war the world has. They're going to reframe it, try to change the boundaries. Verse 4, we don't fight like with the weapons. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. Strongholds, way different. What's happening? When you go after a problem, sometimes what's happening is the person is defending what for them is a stronghold. And it may be, in their mind, perfectly legit. But when you're conflicted, they'll feel threatened, and that will become a stronghold for them. Um, the weapons are not obvious. You can't win the, the conflict with human ingenuity or some kind of creativeness or some kind of special speech or great rhetoric. Uh, Proverbs, I love this, Proverbs chapter 15. The discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of the fool only feeds on folly. So you, you want to say, let's get to the knowledge. Let's get to what we know. Let's get to the truth. Because this is divine conflict. This is not like any of the war. It's not fought with the same weapons. It's different kinds of weapons, and it's divine conflict. And something is happening inside that life, and they're going to lose ground and eventually lose out on what could be a potentially great life. And what Satan does is he creates those strongholds in people's lives as a defense mechanism to keep you from ever going there. And it could be as simple as certain disciplines, godliness, holiness. It could be anything. It, it could deal with time management, and, and it could deal with the way people even relate to one another or overpower in relationships. It could be that insignificant, and yet what it does is it creates within that person a sense of power or ownership, and, and that's a stronghold. A stronghold could be, um, basically, uh, the scholars put it in two different camps. They call it a worldview or an attitude. A worldview would be uh, materialism or hedonism, Darwinism, secularism, relativism, they, they, they get it to this, if you can get it to this category, it's this particular worldview, then people can't argue with it. The, the greatest worldview right now, get this, is just, I call it selfism. Anybody else found that to be true? It's true for me, therefore it's true. Yes. The yellow light that's about to be red is for me the signal to put the metal to the pedal. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Yes. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> I have a friend who's an attorney in Denver. He went through one of those lights one day and it took his picture. But in Denver, they don't just take the picture of the plate, they actually take the picture of the driver. Well, he's an attorney and he could do this I'm more Christian than he is, okay? He's a great guy, he's a great Christian guy. He took the picture, he said, well, if I have to pay 100 bucks for this picture, I'm gonna use it as my Facebook cover. So he took the picture from the camera and put it as his Facebook. You know, he's driving, <laughs> trying to get through the light. <laughs> There's the $100 picture right there. <laughs> it was his light way of paying the bill. What's interesting is he's an attorney for the State Trooper Association, I think. Yeah. So. <laughs> great guy, great guy. And if he hears this message, I was just joking, okay? 
But sometimes it's a worldview, and I think the selfishness of worldview today could be the demise of us in the next generation. That has to be confronted. And you just need to deal with it in, in terms of honesty. Now, it, it could be a worldview. It could be an attitude. An attitude Satan wants you to believe that you have to have. An attitude of, I just jotted a few down, revenge or distrust or anxiety or fear or worry or arrogance, self-importance, self-promotion, whatever it would be. It's just an attitude. And you'll defend that all day because if you don't, you can't get ahead. And that's the way some people manipulate their way through life. And my word to you is that's a stronghold. And you may have it in your own life. You may be dealing with it with another person. It's not going to go away. And if you're like me, you just go, okay, I'll pray it away. I don't want to talk to him about it. That doesn't face it. The Apostle Paul prayed this. He still had to face the people in Corinth. And so how does he do that? Go to the end of verse 4 because I want to pick up 4 to 5. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Strongholds. Figure out what those strongholds are in your own life and then when you're in conflict with another, if you can find out what it is that threatens, that, that becomes the fight or flight response. Okay? Now verse 5. We demolish arguments. Strong words. We demolish arguments and every pretension, that's the thought behind the argument, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, not what, the way I feel or the way I hope or the way I want it to be, we set up what we're doing up against the knowledge of God. You understand there's a rule there? You get this? This is what's called objective truth. So we set our lives up against, verse 5 again, against itself, against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. We pull it out. We tear it down. We look at it. I'm not a surgeon. I have heard of surgeons doing this. They'll find something that needs to be uh, pulled out of a body. They'll pull it. It might be a tumor. They'll pull it out, and you know what they'll do next? They'll play with it. How disgusting can this be? We're paying them hundreds of dollars per hour. Do you know what they're doing? They're figuring that thing out. So they can find a way to preclude it. What brought that thing on? And, and, so, and they roll it over, they take it apart, they flip it, they'll dismantle it, they'll run biopsies on it. Why? They're trying to learn it. You have to do that with your own life. Go back to verse 5 now. Demolish the arguments, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That's the objective truth. So you can't say, well, that's the way I am, or that's the way I like it. Or that's, you know, no. Is this right? Is this what God would want? Is this what Jesus would do? No, then I have to change. I can't change the word of God. I have to change. Okay, then we take every thought captive. In other words, you cage it. You pull it out. You examine it to make sure that it's obedient to Christ. How do I get my mind to mind? I demolish the arguments. I think about what am I thinking about. And I, I destroy the thoughts that are not Christ-like thoughts. Now, there are a number of men in the room. And so, guys, you're going to understand this illustration. There are a number of women in the room, and you may not get it, although you have had to endure what I'm about to describe. A husband and wife are driving someplace, and the wife looks over longingly. The husband puts her hand on his knee and says, What are you thinking about, honey? And his answer is, all together, guys, nothing, nothing. <laughs> 
Okay? How did I know the answer? Because I'm a guy. Yeah, but when you think about nothing, what do you think about? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, but when you think about nothing, when your mind just wanders, where does it go? To nothing. There's a, there's a pastor up in, in central Wisconsin that talks about men's brain, women's brains. You need to watch that video. When you do that, it's like a year of marriage therapy right there. Women's brains are all wired. Men's brains are all boxes. And they only deal with one box at a time. Amen. Amen. <laughs> do not entangle the boxes. You can't open lots of boxes. And then the guys have their favorite box which this is the box with nothing. <laughs> and we go to that box every time. We go to that box, we're watching TV, just clicking our way through. What are you watching? TV, all of it, right now. <laughs> 78 channels, all at the same time. So, ladies, we, please forgive us. We're guys. We're working on it. Understand this, your mind it is the ground that Satan wants to get. And so he says, go after the arguments, pay attention to what the, what's being thrown at you to go through your head. And, and if situation ethics are there, in fact, I find this to be really true. You know, uh, the number one day, way culture does it today is with comedy. They'll get you to laugh at something, and then laugh and it's a little bit shadier, and then laugh and it's a little shadier and a little more disrespectful, and then laugh and it's shadier, disrespectful, and degrading to a group of people, and then all of a sudden you're laughing at something you would have not laughed at 30 minutes earlier because it was so disgusting, but it took you down a path. And that, that's evening television, pop television, for the most part. That is the code, if you will, or the flight plan. And, and don't think that those things just happen without any um, sense about them. No, that's the plan. It was intentionally built that way. That, that comedy was set up to get you to begin to laugh at very sinful things. It is what culture does. And then when you're emotionally engaged with it, then it, it pulls you in even further, pulls you in further, and all of a sudden you're so far off base, you wonder, how, how did I get there? I don't know how I got there. Psalm 101, I don't look at anything. Psalm 101, verse 3. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. It just won't do it. I will not set my eyes on anything that will only cause me to self-destruct. If it's worthless, don't get close to it, get away from it, run from it. In fact, what does Paul say? He says, flee youthful lust. Don't think you can manage it. Don't think you can hold it at bay. Don't think you can keep the fire going somewhere in your life. No, flee, run from it. If you're in the woods and there's a fire, don't put out the fire, run. Okay? Understand that that's the nature of the stronghold. So take every thought captive and... And that means you're going to examine it just like the surgeon does with the tumor. And you're going to figure out where that came from and how it got there. And then you're going to cut that thing off. And then as you do that, you're going to replace it. It's called replacement therapy because you cannot be allowed uh, uh, to, to go through that again. You don't want to get that tumor back again. 
So what are the healthy things you're going to do to make sure that doesn't come back? And you examine it. You take every thought captive and you make your mind obey the words and the life of Jesus. So you bring them up against Jesus. Is this along with what Jesus would do? Is this something I could see Jesus doing? And, and then when you kick out the old thought, go back to verse 5, that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. In other words, if it's not, if it's not along with Christ, we, we kick it out. We throw it to the street. We put it in the dumpster at the curb. I, I don't have room for that in my life. And then you have to replace it with something good. Because if you don't, it, it'll just come right, it'll just fill that space back up again, won't it? Um, if you're taking notes, Galatians 5, destructive pattern after destructive pattern. He says, get rid of those things, the nature of the flesh. And then what does he say next? Then be filled with the Spirit. You have to replace it with what the Holy Spirit would want to do in your life, Galatians 5. That same pattern is found in Ephesians chapter 4. Don't be babies, speak the truth in love. Get rid of that immaturity and replace it with adult kind of. Put off falsehood, put on truth. Same passage, Philippians 3 and 4. Watch out for the dogs, the evildoers. Stop that kind of thing and then instead think on these things. Philippians 3 and 4. Great passage for you to memorize over the summer. Colossians chapter 3 uses a different word picture. He says you take off those clothes, the clothes of the old man. You put on the new clothes, the, the clothes of royalty because you're a child of God. So you, get, you take the thought captive, you get rid of the bad thought and then you have to replace it with something wholesome, something healthy. Because if you don't, you'll go right back to the old pattern. Okay, um, it was June of uh, 1944, and you know this because we celebrate it a, a lot right now. It was D-Day going from England on to the shores of France. Remember this? Reading about it? And on that decision day, uh, thousands and thousands of troops landed and thousands died but they formed a beachhead that day and then they ran through the beach and many many died but they were able to form a beachhead and they were able to run up the hill and take enough property that then we we essentially that day German generals knew this is over we're done at that point the United States had been in the war already a few years England even longer Poland even longer uh, France even longer but once we landed in D-Day in one year the war was essentially over Did you get that so that was the deciding day and the victory was ours and the German generals knew it the problem with it was 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 as allied troops were coming on shore there were high towers strongholds that were still able to shoot at them and so the idea was if you could soften that and take out the high places we could make the beach a whole lot easier and a whole lot safer. So we know we're going to win the war and we're winning the war and we eventually will win the war. But along the way, you have to take out the strong towers in order to survive the war. You understand the difference? Because it doesn't matter if we win the war, but you die. You still die. So the idea is to take out those strongholds. And if you can get to those strongholds, you're going to go across the country even faster. And sure enough, Allied forces were able to take the strongholds eventually. Took some time because they were reinforced. And, it, and they were armed very well. And they had a lot of ammo. They were 
ready to do this all day. But eventually we were able to, to run over those strongholds. And when we did, we went right across Europe and within one year, Germany was done, and not long after that, Japan was done. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that because 2,000 years ago, Jesus won the battle for you and me. The only thing left are the strongholds, the things in your life that drive you crazy, the repeated sin, the conflictedness. And if you'll deal with those strongholds and call them out, not only will you win the war, even better, you'll survive the war. You'll survive the war. I've told you this before. I have a buddy who uh, he and I served on a pastoral staff together. He was my translator. He spent 40 years uh, in, in Argentina as a church planting pastor. But when he was a young man, he's in his 90s now and he lives in, in Kentucky. And we talk about once a year, although we'd like to talk more often. Um, but uh, when he was a teenager, he went to Bible college to become a missionary. He wanted to be a church planting missionary. And partway into his Bible education, uh, th this war breaks out and he gets drafted. And, and he gets trained, becomes part of the United States Army. And he's, he lands on a ship and they take him to England. And not long after that, they put him in Europe. And he's guarding ammo dumps. And he's not on the front line, but he's part of the system that's going across. And so I would take Ron to, to coffee occasionally. I just want to hear these stories because this just predates. I go, so what's it like to know you're on the winning side? And he would look at me like, you, you, you obviously don't know what you're talking about. I go, what do you mean? He goes, we didn't know we were going to win. Because I only know World War II from history. And he goes, when we were in the war, we were hoping we'd win. I go, what a posture. He goes, yeah, I'm glad that we won. I said, why are you glad we won? He said, because we're speaking English, not German. You know, he would say things like that. And I, I would say, so what was it like? Because I had all these views of marching across France. He goes, no. He said, we were begging food and we were catching naps whenever we could. We were always tired and we were always looking to just shave and get a haircut, and we we're just trying to survive. And then, uh, he, so he's marching across, he's, he's guarding these uh, fortresses, these uh, kind of uh, ammo dumps as they move across Europe, so then he'd have to move again and move again and move again. And I said, so what was your number one thought? Was it about victory, or was it about dreaming about the day of victory, or was it about coming home to victory and marrying your high school sweetheart? What was it? And you know what? It was interesting, his response. I'll never forget, we were in a coffee house, and he said, I, I, you don't understand the war. He said, I just was trying to survive. Really? He goes, yeah. He said, most of the time my prayer to God was, God, just let me live. And then he shows me a wound on his hand when a bomb blew up next to him, not far from him, but a little piece of shrapnel hit him and took out a chunk of his hand. He said, if that hit me in the head, I'd be dead. And it was, he was guarding. It was, it, it, shrapnel came. And I realized, yeah, he, he could have died. But he survived. And that was his prayer. And I say to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus won the battle 2,000 years ago. All you have to do now is deal with the strongholds. And if you'll deal with those strongholds, 
Not only will you win the battle, you'll also survive it. You cannot lose. You cannot lose. Let's bow for prayer. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Ask yourself the question, what are the strongholds of my own life? Before I fix someone else's conflictedness, what's my deal? What keeps coming back at me? And what truth do I need to replace? If I kick out the lie, what's the truth I need to replace it with? Gracious Father in heaven, you have been so kind to give us your word and to teach us about conflictedness, but we realize the conflict's not only out there among other people, the conflictedness is in our own hearts. And so we openly tell you, Lord, we have some business dealing with other people, but we have most, most of our business needs to be in our own hearts. So I pray, Lord, we'd be the people who would look at every thought, every motive, every value, and hold it up against the life of Christ and, and hold it captive and bring it to obedience in Christ. For we not only want to be your children, but we want to be, we, we want to be the best kids as we head towards heaven. And we want to arrive having dealt with the strongholds in our own lives. And it'd be great to solve the conflict that's out there, but even more importantly, to solve the conflict that's in here. Would you do the work and we thank you. And you've won the battle for us and so we say thanks. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. <laughs>